This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club, the reality version. I'm here with Troy Patterson, Slate's wonderful TV critic. This is Megan O'Rourke, one of Slate's culture critics. Hello, Troy. Hi, Megan. Hi, Troy. And our special guest today, Jody Rosen, Slate's wonderful music critic. Hello, Jody. Hello, Megan. Today we're talking about Reality Hunger, a manifesto by David Shields. And there's a lot to to get into with this book, which is a it's a nonfiction book. It, it calls itself a manifesto. I think one of the things we should ask ourselves is whether it really is a manifesto. And um, it's arranged in 618 sections in chapters going from A to Z, from overture to coda. And one of the distinguishing qualities of the book is that many, many, many of these fragments or these paragraphs are borrowed almost verbatim, in many cases verbatim, from other writers, so that we have a kind of palimpsest of quotation arranged in such a way it, it suggests as to make an argument about uh, our relationship as artists to, quote-unquote, reality. Just to give our listeners a taste of what the beginning of this book sounds like, he the very opening lines say, every artistic movement from the beginning of time is an attempt to figure out a way to smuggle more of what the artist thinks is reality into the work of art. A couple lines down, Shields writes, my intent is to write the Ars Poetica for a burgeoning group of interrelated but unconnected artists in a multitude of forms and media. Lyric essay, prose poem, collage novel, visual art, film, television, radio, performance art, rap, stand-up, comedy, graffiti, who are breaking larger and larger chunks of, quote, reality into their work. Um, That quotation mark, I think, is something we're going to have to ask ourselves some questions about. So, big claim here and and a big statement about what the book is going to do. So I think it's worth untangling. One of the things I felt about the book was that there were a lot of different strands all tangled up. And I think it's worth untangling David Shields' many tangled threads about, quote-unquote, this reality. Do do you think there's strands, or is it more like a stew? Good question. Well, stew stew is interconnected and mingled, and strands are... I think they're strands in a lot of... I think, actually, there are three strands, and then there's one stew. That's my theory. I won't get into that. Right. I actually was thinking about this last night. I think there's several strands, strands, and then there's and like a stew. <laughs> so there's a there's a bunch of different arguments, and I'll just name a couple and then stop talking. Uh, but um, one of them is about the novel not being a dominant form anymore, right? And Shields, I should say, is, is, is a novelist. He's written many novels along with other nonfiction books. But so there's an anxiety here about the novel and its place in the culture, right? There's an argument about the pleasures of cultural appropriation of things like sampling, and Jody, I'm hoping we'll get you to talk a bit about that. Um, and in some ways, this book is sort of a screed against copyright law. Uh, it's a d- defense of borrowing, the kind of borrowing that goes on here in the, in the book. And there's many, many more elements. Um, before I keep talking and bore us all to death, I want to ask you, what did you think of this book? Did it seem useful? Is it a manifesto? What, what element struck you most? And, and how would you describe this, this stew? Troy. <laughs> I'm not certain that it rates as a manifesto. I, I'm swayable on this point, but doesn't a manifesto have to have a, like a point of view? 
one thinks. I spent the first 20 pages being like, where's the manifesto in this manifesto? Yeah. I, I think by labeling it a manifesto, it's a kind of uh, branding, which uh, is partly maybe meant to excuse its um, sort of, I wouldn't even call its form episodic. It's pastichish nature. How do, how do I want to say it? Um, pastiche. Yes, it's pastiche. <laughs> You know, upon first glance, I spent 15 seconds with the book and decided that it looked like a, a fake in the context of no context mm. to uh, mm -hmm. invoke the great sort of spectral media age meditation mm -hmm. by, uh, do I pronounce his last name, Tro or Trow? Tro. I do. George W. I don't Trow. know how you do. but well, <laughs> Yeah, so this is in that genre. David Shields is clearly a bright guy. And I like his references, both the, the books he mentions and the ones he swipes from. He does a good job of uh, sort of loitering on the shoulders of giants. But the book is uh, it's way undercooked, as I think its sort of episodic pasta sushi nature indicates. And, you know, he, and, he, tries, and he, he tries to excuse the fact that it's undercooked. He builds in escape hatches or apologies in this really like one of his in in paragraph section number six he it's it's simply i need say nothing only exhibit which mm -hmm. i guess if we go to there's an, a, an appendix that um and that's that's a oh, yes. walter benjamin quotation but and and later on in the book section 384 begins the lyric essay doesn't expound is suggestive rather than exhaustive depends on gaps may merely mention so he sort of builds in this apology for his lack of cogency in this book, for his lack of an argument. But you and, know... Okay, sorry, not no, go ahead, please. What's interesting to me about this book is that um, it's... it's uh, I'm very, well, Let me just start by saying I'm very sympathetic to Shields' project. I feel like my aesthetics are quite similar to his. I like the fragmentary. I love, book, I love David Markson's This Is Not a Novel. I love the idea of the kind of novel built on pieces of information. I love Camera Lucida, which is a, it sort of seemed like another almost model for this, right? These kind of fragmentary, aphoristic pieces. But when you read that quote, Jody, I thought, well, this book is exhaustive as well as being exhausting. It's just it's actually not that fragmentary. It's trying to contain so much and not be suggestive. It's almost kind of the opposite of suggestive. It keeps telling us the same things over and over and over. It's mm -hmm. insistive, if that were a word. And I think that a lot of what it is insisting upon would be evident to anyone who is inclined to pick up a book like this in the first place. Yes. Like when yeah. he mentions that there was this thing that happened with mechanical reproduction that changed the way that right. communication right. happened. Right. Right. I, right. You know, we've heard about, we've heard that one before. Um, yeah. Jody, do you want to just, you mentioned the index and I realized we didn't describe that part of it and it is a relevant part of the book and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I thought if you want to. No, not at all. So, so many of the 618 fragment sections aphorisms, whatever we're calling these things that make up the book. Um, many of them, as you say, are called from other sources. Or, I mean, he at, at one point in the book says that he's he's quoting, but not verbatim. So mm -hmm. he'll he'll amend quotations from sources. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you look in the in the, in the appendix, you'll find that section thirty nine uh, comes from Rob Grier for a new mm -hmm. for a new novel, and he notes the book that in many ways got me thinking about all this stuff. He quotes from Philip Roth. He quotes from Vivian Gornick. He quotes from John Mellencamp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so this um, kind of um, exquisite corpse of ideas and aphorisms and 
thought is, you know, both his and it's lifted from all these sources. And that, I mean, it seems to me that that's his uh, attempt to formally mirror his argument is, I guess, interesting and could work if the if the argument was coherent. And, and I'm not sure. I mean, I, he, he's saying, you know, that he loves appropriation and he mm-hmm. hates uh, stringent copyright law and that mm-hmm. all the, all these vital current art forms are built on appropriation and, and, and sampling literal and, and figurative. And again, my reaction is a little bit like Troy's. Yeah, we know this. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah. I guess the, bu- the book functions as a kind of an interesting anthology of not entirely related thoughts. But I, a I keep... bathroom book. It, 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 I mean, I hate book. to say it. I was thinking that myself. <laughs> not that I've tried it out, but never know. But I, I get, uh, you know, for me, I keep bumping up against what does he mean by reality? It's complete. It, it, it's unclear. I mean, he puts scare quotes around reality, but it's unclear to me whether he means the objective reality of, you know, everyday life, whether he means artworks which purport to, which, you know, have a verite quality, he seems all over the place about right. what well, the, reality the, the charitable way to look at things is that the book, that maybe its mission is to capture what reality is, to go seeking uh, a definition of this slipperiest of terms, you know, in which, you know, and any book that tried to do that would be doomed to fail. And then the problem is just to fail in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I think we should. What is what does he mean by reality? When I was reading the book, I wrote in my little flap here um, that there's a lot of different kinds of reality in this book, which I guess charitably, right? We could say that's one of its strengths. Is trying to. It seems like it's trying to kind of encompass and say something about the moment, but to do it through fragmentation and through juxtaposition, and a, and to kind of convey some of the concatenation of the culture we live in and the the kind of extraordinary juxtapositions of source material that that you know artists use now from John Cougar Mellencamp to Rogue Grier, right? Like that 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 kind of juxtaposition seems really important to the work of this book, but kind of one of my problems with the book and I don't mean to merely focus on the the negative but I guess it's actually kind of relevant like the beginning I thought was the weakest part of the book I thought it got much stronger actually as it went along but the beginning is this awfully potted history of writing Mm. and then a long chapter on James Frey which I think James Frey James Frey which I thought was just utterly kind of boring and rehashed um, from you know literally rehashed from a lot of the quotes there from newspapers and you know magazines and it just felt like really this isn't that interesting but later in the book he gets to more of a discussion about collage about fragmentation about memory there's a really interesting section about memory and and tellingly to me the, a lot of the quotations there start to come from writers rather than from journalists and i have to say the journalistic part of the quotations just felt like the language wasn't that mm. that interesting but I say that by way of giving a sense of like how much different, how many different topics there are here. So there's reality in the sense of realism. It sense to me, it seemed to me like there's an mm. argument about kind of the novel and realism. Then there seemed to be like reality, meaning the new distribution channels for art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? There was a lot of how we get art, how we make art, and that seemed to be part of the reality that he's trying to evoke. Then there's the reality of. Um, there's a kind of obsession with novelty, it seemed to me, the sense that like forms get tired and then therefore they become kind of mired in their own artifice. 
but I didn't know whether these were all reality or whether these were all different. And I, w- I would add, there's also he he seems to me to be a bit of an authenticity <clears throat> monger. He's into mm. he's into the idea of the raw and the and that you know the, the real somehow being mm. unvarnished. Mm-hmm. Um, but aren't there also some like feints in the other direction? There that are. Is... That's one of the things, right? There's feints in both directions. Right. right. And I believe am I making this up or did I just imagine that? Regarding this uh, as trying to hold two ideas in mind at the same yes. time, there is definitely among the book's self-conscious riffs, one on negative capability. Yes. Right. Yes. Mm. And definitely that's part of what I kind of like the most about this book is when it starts to activate that, those two different things. Because at one point I had the same thing I wrote in my margin. Wait, he's just said he wants the raw, but then here he's talking about high aesthetics. And then you get to the point where he talks the, the great Fitzgerald quote about the sign of a great mind is you can hold two opposing mm. ideas in, in your head at the same time. But You know, one thing that might be useful is to actually uh, read from a passage early in the book where he describes some of the stuff that he thinks comprises uh, you know our our cultural moment and mm-hmm. that he that he finds um, that he thinks is evidence of this reality hunger <laughs> mm-hmm. as he calls it and he he lists among other things I'm just gonna like read various of the um and this is in section two section two yeah. yeah Jeff Krause's plug-in delete city the quasi home movie open water Borat uh, the, this is one of my favorites, a depilation scene in the 40-year-old <laughs> version. Uh, he goes on and on. Todd Haynes' superstar, a biopic of Karen Carpenter that uses Barbie dolls as the principal actors and is available now only as a bootleg video. Curb Your Enthusiasm, which, characteristic of this genre, this ungenre, this anti-genre, relies on viewer awareness of the creator's self-conscious, wobbly manipulation of the gap between person and persona. M&M's, The M&M Show, The Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles, VH1's Behind the Music series, which completely confused me, as did, he, he, he writes, and he goes on, The Bachelor, uh, <laughs> yeah. the reality show The Bachelor, tells us more about the state of unions than any romantic comedy could dream of telling us. I disagree with that completely, yeah. but yeah. Uh, Dave Eggers' heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, and I, the reason I mention all this is I, I think um, the idea he's raising here that there is, that we are in a cultural moment which is characterized by um, works of art that play with verite, and that that interestingly straddle the line between art mm-hmm. in quotes and reality in quote, quote is is true and i and i and i i long for a book that has something really trenchant or novel to say about that but i think he's just he, in my reading he just kind of lays it out but do you think that's especially true now of this moment since a lot of the collage like things practices he's been talking about have been going on for a hundred years and not even a hundred years you know he 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 he, he rightly mentions that the old testament is is itself an anthology a collage i mean you know that's biblical scholars find out spend all their time looking at the redactor this is is one of the questions is is this he he starts by i mean okay so let's take that central claim that he starts with i almost thought that he kind of did himself in with the beginning of the book that if he just hadn't made that claim the book i would have read the book very differently but since he makes this claim that we hunger for reality right now and then he uses these as his examples what what do we I mean do you agree that we hunger for reality right now and also I think one problem is that even these examples raise the question of well, what is that reality these these things all seem like different ver- different very different kinds of hungering these these cultural right. artifacts to I, me. Hu- I hunger right now for an egg sandwich yes and what I thirst for is an end to postmodernity <laughs> exactly I thought we were yeah. can we just settle this already when does 
uh, a concern with a postmodern end. Well, I Can thought it ended here because <laughs> I wrote in today? my book. This wants to be POMO, but it's actually faux pro, meaning faux profound, but, which I thought was very clever. <laughs> <Yeah>. So irritated. <laughs> faux pro. I was like, the faux pro. Uh, no, well, you know. No POMO. That's no the new cry. No um, POMO. <laughs> uh, new, you're going to be hearing that in rap song. But uh, um, the, uh, you, you know, I guess one thing that he – Here's one thing that I think is happening. He, he writes somewhat interestingly in section number 279, mm-hmm. I believe, about what I would call the new amateurism. Or mm-hmm. that is to say, yeah, he so talks about really Facebook, blogs, um, U- YouTube, yeah. karaoke, and the fact yeah. that everyone's you know user-generated content. He says... Yeah. Uh, he says more than a third of adult American internet users have created original content and posted it on the web. That's yeah. that's okay. By now, that's a truism. Yeah, everyone knows it, but it is characteristic of distinctly characteristic of this period more than the fact that we live in an age of collage. Yeah. Okay, and and that to me is interesting, yes. but I'm not kind sure that he draws any real conclusions about it. And that to me, that doesn't the that that, that to me is a factor of. New technology and the historical moment in which we live, it forces that don't have to do with some vague hunger on the part of whomever. All of us for all of us for reality, but in fact, you know, if if anything, it's 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 a factor of celebrity hunger. Yes, not reality. Not reality hunger, and the new technologies which enable regular Joes to create to be part of it and to be a yeah here here. I would also say that I think part of the problem, he's on to something interesting there and pointing in the right direction, but that's the kind of target that's moving too fast to get a good bead on, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. I mean, and I think actually the list here that you of, of texts that he references, and by text I mean just cultural texts of any kind, kind of gets at what you're talking about. Jody, I was writing that those notes to myself, and I thought, you know, heartbreaking work of staggering genius, the self-conscious apparatus in that, that has to do with also I don't think that that has to do with feeling that we're being sold stuff all the time right and so there is I think he's oh, right oh can I do like, the ad now oh speaking <laughs> of we might as well here's our little bit of reality which is that we need an ad to support our program yeah it is. today we're brought to you by audible.com which offers lots and lots of downloadable audiobooks and here's a deal. This is how we reel you in. If you sign up for a one-book-a-month subscription to Audible through our URL, you'll get a credit good for one free book. That book is yours to keep, even if you cancel your subscription within the uh, 14-day trial period, within the fortnight trial period. The URL that you're interested in is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. Thank you, Troy. And now on with the back show. To, Where were we? Back to authenticity. We yeah, um, I would say that, you know, I think part of what he's really getting at I mean, in that list of things is that we're, I mean, he says after the list, at once desperate for authenticity and in love with artifice, I know all the moments are, quote, moments staged in theatrical, shaped and thematized. And that's true. And that's kind of a useful thing to say, right? But, but there's different, there's a lot of different things tangled up here. And one of them has to do with being frustrated, wanting to expose the seams of the garment in a sense, right? That like we want to, well, that's what. Eggers is doing in a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. He's showing us the ways in which things are put together and sold, and he's deconstructing the form, too, um, and those those things go together. But, you know, to me, The Bachelor is not doing any of that. The Bachelor is like high artifice pretending to be kind of reality, and that that's a whole different strain of this kind of reality. And 
so I, I was hungering myself for him to pick apart these things because I think that there there is some interrelationship, but that a lot of these things are inverses of the others. And in my kind of literal-minded way, I wanted him to, as a critic, kind of pull that all apart. And I felt like he never did. And instead we get in section three this this statement that seems so broad as to be not quite useful, and I wonder what you thought of it. He says, an artistic movement, albeit an organic and as yet unstated one, is forming. What are its key components? A deliberate unartiness, raw material, seemingly unprocessed, unfiltered, uncensored, and unprofessional. And he mentions Abraham Zapruder's Super 8 film of the Kennedy assassination as a kind of, you know, influential piece of art. Then he says, randomness, openness, just accident and serendipity, spontaneity, artistic risk, emotional urgency and intensity, reader-viewer participation. That, to me, goes back to the technology mm-hmm. point you were making. An overly literal tone as if a reporter were viewing a strange culture, plasticity of form, pointillism, criticism as autobiography, self-reflexivity, self-ethnography, anthropological autobiography, a blurring of any distinct between fiction and nonfiction, the lore and blur, blur, the lore and blur of the real, by which I'm not quite sure what he means there. But you know, this is a lot of really different kind of things, and I ended up feeling my take on the book ultimately was that there were two books here, and one I was really interested in, and that was a kind of more fragmentary collage about making art and memory, and some of it had to do with distribution channels. And the other book was, to me, what felt like, and this is what you were saying, Troy, about the, the target moving too fast. The other book was like this kind of potted history of the moment we find ourselves in as artists in a world where technology has radically changed distribution systems. And if you look at it, actually, most of the quotations for the second part, this like kind of potted history of where we are, comes from journalism. And they're long paragraphs, and they're just not linguistically that interesting. And that's all heavily at the beginning of the book, and I was really bored by most of that. But when he gets to the kind of more fragmentary collage toward the end... That stuff, I you know, I have to say, I, I I really liked a lot of that, and I want to kind of give Shields credit for that because I feel like right. I've been really negative. And I actually thought, you know, he talks about memoir, for example, and kind of fragmentation. And I just finished writing a memoir, and I have to say, like, I put the book down, and I was thinking a lot about what he said about fragmentation and and claims to authority, and, and none of it's radically new, but there's a pleasing way in which he arranges some of those fragments toward the end. Did you? share any of that feeling or did you yeah 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 well no he's got a good eye for epigrams which you know i suppose it it says something in the case of a book that's uh about collage and appropriation that part of his art here is editing and extracting things or paging through bartlett's or whatever to to get some uh epigrams and koan that are worth musing upon and um Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah and he's a good curator i mean Mm -hmm. because this is like this is like an a work of this is a curatorial work you know what I mean and and that and you know I, I sometimes would like cut a paragraph out of the newspaper mm-hmm. stick it in a you know in a drawer whatever so I feel like he, he did he did that well it's That's just, a, you've just reminded me that it, this book is a little bit like reading someone's journal well, I did think that some of the paragraphs felt like course descriptions for me, and I felt that there were journal <laughs> moments and also moments where he had kind of pasted in a course description. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. You know, but, you know, one thing I'd like yeah, to talk yeah. about is, like, he uh, he has a pathological hatred for the contemporary fiction or the modern yes, novel. Like and this is, like, too, yeah. this seems to me to be behind this. If there, to, to the yes. extent that there's a manifesto here, it's that the novel has outworn... It's the, the 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 novel on the classical nineteenth century model has outworn its welcome, and no one's right. n- no one 
is doing anything interesting in the novel and he's like he's like it's all about the the lyric essay and you know i again he's to me this was really overheated because i feel like this is a really old argument and the fact that he's um in a lather about it so much mystified me but i want to i want to read one Let's thing quote from one of his yeah well, one thing here uh, in section 379 maybe he's talking about the film version of the of nick hornby's mm-hmm. high high fidelity and he cites the director Stephen Frears who said uh, quote what we realized was that the novel was a machine to get to 12 crucial speeches in the book about romance and art and music and list making and masculine distance and the masculine drive for art and the masculine difficulty with intimacy end quote Shields goes on to say this is the case for most novels you have to read 700 pages to get the to get the handful of insights that were the reason the book was written and the apparatus of the novel is there as a huge elaborate overbuilt stage set uh, which to me, I, I mean, I'm not sure that I agree that insights are what I want from a novel. And in fact, I, you know, the overbuilt. Maybe, what if I want the overbuilt stage set? What if you want a story? Well, that, that's well, preci- that's, pre- that's, preci- that's precisely well, it. He, and, and he seems to be. He's anti-story. He's anti. He's, he's anti-plot. He's anti-plot. He, he's anti. He talks about right. And as someone who loves like. Um, genre fiction and loves mm-hmm. loves the like the greatest hacks who've ever written it's mm-hmm. like like P.G. Woodhouse and mm-hmm. Georges Simenon. It's mm-hmm. like ah. it, you know I'm all about plot. Um, so and and story. So I don't. I'm not sure that. Here's a question too. I mean, one of one of this, I'm glad you read that passage because I wrote after that. I just put it in brackets and I wrote no. <laughs> but, I've just got but, a big X, but you know. Yeah. First of all, also before I go into my question that I'm going to pose to you, one of the there's a characteristic problem right here in this, which is that one of the things that made this book less than successful for me was that Shields, when he's trying to make his own points in his own language, often exaggerates in a way that's just not useful. So he says you have to read 700 pages to get the handful of insights that were the reason the book was written. And it's like, actually, most novels are not 700 pages. Even if he'd said 200 pages, right. I, would have, I would be more trusting of this, this narrative voice. But there is this fascinating um, distaste for the novel as a story. And now I will confess my sympathies here. I actually like a lot of the kinds of deconstructed lyric novels that he's talking about. My tastes do run in that direction. I mean, I will happily read a story, a long story plotted novel, but at the same time, he seems to go on, and did you see this, Troy, about there's this obsession with the fact that we are unknowable to one another, right? That each of us is unknowable to the other, and he wants to plumb the depths of everyone's unknowability through writing, which I find totally bizarre because that's what novels do. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the kind of novel that has character and plot does for me as a reader in a way that nothing else does. Did this seem like a contradiction? What did you make of this part of the book? I thought it was kind of lame. I mean, I'm trying to... (laughs) Like, I like a good French new novel, right? Right. Um, But, you know, there are a lot of strategies and ways to tell stories, and I think that I don't know that his frustration with the perceived limits of the postmodern novel is um, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you have an option. You could try to just, write a Dickens novel. But it's not even the postmodern novel that he's frustrated with. He's frustrated with all novels, it seems to me. Like the 19th yeah, I mean, century novel, yeah, too. Yeah, right? yeah he's frustrated right? with the 19th century novel, which, story, which is fundamentally. Yeah. He doesn't like story. And I mean, and that's that's just. A little bit strange. I mean, he's yeah. It's like you don't have to be a novelist then. 
Right. Could no one's be no one's holding and, and a fact, nonfiction writer. I mean, this that right. <laughs> resonates with me. I don't read a lot of contemporary fiction. I yeah. I don't enjoy most of it, and I just spend yeah. my time consuming other yeah. stuff. But uh, but I'm not so angry about the the I mean the exhaustion of the form. Moreover, like I mean, okay, in certain periods, certain types of uh, certain media or artistic forms are more vital than others. I think that's all you need to say. And 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 you know he likes he prefers something that's a little hodgepodgey and collagey. Good for him. I I think um, this. I think he's uh, for, despite his potted histories, as you call them, mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. He's kind of an ahistorical thinker. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's very good at mm-hmm. the broader context thing. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it struck me. For instance, in that passage I was talking about earlier, where he where he was um, talking about the Bible, and when, when he when he champions, I mean, when he champions this these um, collage forms as somehow fundamentally of this moment, there it is. The fact that you know we've we've talked about it. It's something that's been around, um, as he himself said. I, at one point, he does mention that the 18th century novel was more. Postmodern, as everyone knows, you know that Tristram Shandy is is what is quote the first postmodern novel, right? And you know later he mentioned the Canterbury Tales as a mm-hmm. kind of like anthology. So he he faints in the direction of saying this thing has gone on for a long time. At the same time as he's saying right now we have this reality hunger and we're in this unique moment and leaves it a little bit ill defined. But the, one of the places that his both his ahistorical thinking and his kind of shallow thinking really hit me with the force of a revelation is when he talks about music because I because I know a little something about pop music and I don't yeah. think he does but tell, tell us more but, about before, that. before yeah. you get there can yeah. I sort of Please. one point about the sort of the status or the status of a novel is that I think a more a version of this argument that does have some historical sense is made by Tom Wolfe right whose his idea is that the the uh, sort of the withering of the novel and ha- uh, has to do with the um, disdain in certain godforsaken academic and literary circles for things for stories that are strongly plotted and that sort of partly as um, in a status seeking way that you know these sort of like intellectualized thin uh, I don't mean thin in terms of length but in terms of uh, meatiness that these sort of non-novels are ascendant for that Wolf prescribes like big 700-page chunks of social realism. Shields, I think, wants to hit the eject button altogether and Mm. sort of, if this book does have any meaning as a manifesto, it's um, for him to encourage nonfiction writing, essayism, perhaps uh, most importantly, but he also gives some examples that involve reporting. Mm. Period. You know, and one of my frustrations with the book is like, okay, so you're sort of pointing in the direction of, you know, some artistic movement that you'd like to see. Why don't you actually give me the book that you're sort of fantasizing about instead that's of that's right, right? Yeah. that's one of the. Do you, real but do you questions. think that he? Do you think that he thinks he is giving you that book? I think in moments he aspires to. I don't know. That was one of my questions. Was was that? I mean, it starts as a manifesto, but it kind of abandons. I don't know because my confusion about this was that Troy he would seem I would take it to be the case that Shields would not agree with Wolf. That it's precisely the Wolf account of what fiction should be that he is most. T- 
tired of, right? That he finds the most conventional, the most in, not interesting, right? But he agrees with Wolf about the he agrees with Wolf's diagnosis, though. Because he agrees he, that that um, if if I th- I believe Troy is referring to the famous Harper's or Atlantic essay that Wolf wrote sometime in the late eighties or early nineties, mm-hmm. in which he argued, and also there's a Philip Roth quote in the Shields book which makes the same point that um, particularly acutely in American life, mm-hmm. reality is outstripping. The, the possibilities of fiction because right. because we live in such a carnivalesque but that's, crazy this is where one of the tensions is right because yeah. what he doesn't want is the socially real novel he doesn't right. seem that interested no in I'm that, saying he right? agrees with Wolf about the right. about the diagnosis but not about how to how to solve it because yeah. in fact the kinds of novels that he's he's uh, making a case for are books like David Markson's this is not a novel he quotes David Markson and Markson is aesthetically and formally this book reminds me of a Markson book Markson's mm-hmm. books are fragmented um, especially this is not a novel is these fragmented right. sections. Many, many of them are quotations from philosophers or taken from letters of artists. It's a, and I think that book, This Is Not a Novel, is an extraordinary book. It's beautiful. It's lyrical. It's suggestive. The language is really intense. It, it gives you a kind of experience to read the book that um, is, I think, the kind of experience that he wants us to have right. reading this book. He talks at one point, um, I've lost the page here, but about kind of fragmentation. Let me just find the quote. And I think this is what he wants to do here, is he wants to create a book that's like David Markson's book. And in fact, on uh, section 334, he talks about, I think, what he wants to do here, which is, he says, momentum in literary mosaic derives not from narrative, but from the subtle progressive buildup of thematic resonances. And that seems to be the kind of book he wants to create. But but to me, again, just to harp on this, that's hampered by all the kind of leaden, long quoting from kind of not that well-written journalism at the, at the beginning of the book. But I, he does want to have more nonfiction in it, but he, I don't think he wants to give up on that. It's like, it's like watching someone struggle with themselves, right? It's a kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, like in the moment of transformation, because he keeps kind of making the call for nonfiction and, and complaining about the novel, but clearly he's not given up on fiction all together or it right. seemed to me that was one of the questions was that like why all of this right do, do we and i'm not sure that that's a sufficient conflict to work as a story again a story the yeah another good book another good fragmentary sort of spooky book that he mentions is speedboat or not an average yeah. speedboat Which I um love. that has the benefit of being a book that's about something other than itself right, right. this is a very sort of right self-reflexive. The the reality hunger is this snake here that wants to eat its own tail. And I think that that is of limited utility. That said, it has instigated this discussion, which I find engaging enough. Mm. But then again, I'm the one having it. Is this no, a useful conversation? Right, and I wonder whether any of our listeners will say, well, here's what I, because I, I feel I've been kind of ragging on David Shields, whose work I do actually, whose work I like, and, and whose aesthetic I'm, I'm sympathetic to. And I think I think actually for me, the, I, I got fixated on this manifesto part of the book, and and partly on the fact that there's so much, try, he's trying to contain so much. But I will say what I took away that was really useful, and again, so to talk about myself for a moment, I'm writing this memoir, and one of the things that I'm trying to do in the memoir is write about the experience of writing, because it's very, you're, you're quite aware that you're constructing a story, out, when you're constructing a story out of your life, you're quite aware of all the ways in which you're using artifice to do so. And for me, one of the really useful things about this book that I'm thinking a lot about, and I thought he, he was really right about, is 
the assertion that you know memoir reminding us that memoir really is literature and not journalism and that it is um, an artificial construct and that that to kind of foreground that or to find ways to foreground that is really useful and I think that some of the writing in this book reminded me felt like it came out of the predicament of being a creative writing teacher <laughs> you know what I mean like I wonder I wonder what people who are in writing programs if they would have a kind of different um, reaction to this book than people I ended up wondering who this book was for in a certain way because I do think the tenure committee you know well you know I do think that maybe (laughs) there's like an argument he has with someone who's given a a lecture who is dismissive of Catherine Harrison's The Kiss and he includes that letter to this person in the book and I thought it was a really telling moment because I think that some of what he's arguing against are kind of people in the academy who staked out a position as a fiction professor professor, right and there's this kind of like uh, hardening of genre when you're in the academy that maybe when you're not in the academy and as he's rightly pointing out like there's all these examples of blurring everywhere mm. I sort of long-windedly didn't really answer your question Troy but I want to also make sure we go back to your thing about music Jody. yeah you know there's a there's a section where he talks um, a lot about popular music and in particular about hip-hop and predictably extols sampling which struck me as cur- well one thing that's Interesting, just in terms of sampling as such, that is to say, sampling snatches of other records by digital means and, you know, putting a beat behind them and creating a new song. That happens a lot today, but not nearly as much as it did 10, 15, right. 20 years ago. So he f- it feels a little behind yeah. when he talks about that. And he, you know, talk about potted histories. He's like, well, the Jamaican DJ <laughs> yeah. did this back in the 60s, and then it mutated in the Bronx into hip-hop. It's like, okay. Yeah. We, he, he also writes as if he just discovered the I know. mashup. I know. Right, right. I yeah, know. no, all this stuff is... So that is all a little weird. But then he gets into a discussion of um, hip-hop's cult of mm. the real mm-hmm. and, you know, keeping it real and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know... I feel like there's two different things going. He's extolling hip hop as this great, um, as this genre, which is all about appropriation and kind of um, uh, layered texts, mm-hmm. which I agree. And that's one of the things that's really exciting about hip hop is the way. Um, and and now because of the primacy of hip hop, it's suffused lot, lots of popular music, particularly you know pop music mm-hmm. with a capital P. There's um, there's uh, a blurring between the persona of the singer. You know, often singers are quite self-referential in their songs in a way that they, maybe mm. they weren't before the advent of hip-hop. So broadly, they were on occasion, but, you know, there's lots of songs in which Beyonce sings about being Beyonce. Yeah. Or Beyonce sing sings about, about in scare quotes, being Beyonce. Or celebrity. Right. So that's, and, and, and that's, that's all interesting. But, he, but, you know, reality, real, the real in hip-hop is like a metaphor system is really what it is. Mm. It's like, you know, it's, it's a theme. It's a leitmotif, or not even a leitmotif, but that would suggest that it's like too little. It's one of the major themes of hip hop, mm-hmm. but it's not end of life. I would say end of life, right. end of life. But I mean, like you end know, of the, the novel of, of certain but, novels, but, but building romance. But it's specifically <laughs> right, the cult right, right. of street credibility, right. and you know, gangsta bona fides or whatever. Yeah. You know that that's a theme of hip hop, but that's not that's different from the reality hunger. I think that he's talking about, yeah. and he and he doesn't. Um, 
parse that, I don't think. I think he hobbles himself with this opening because I think that actually part of what he wants to do in this book, and you're, you're hitting on it, and we can give him credit for this, is he's consciously trying to do that, right? He's trying to include everything in a way. Like, he wants to include everything in order to create this kind of concatenation. So he wants to have lots of different kinds of reality and investigate them all. But because he starts by trying to evoke a specific kind of movement or moment, those two things are in tension with each other because the specificity of a moment in which certain things are happening is not the same thing as the kind of inclusive, let me interrogate reality in all of these different ways. Like those, that's just too big to be connected to. Because I mean, one th- question I had for you, Jody, is, you know, he, he talks about The Bachelor and then he talks about hip hop sampling and he acts as if there's a suggestion that there's something similar about their appropriation of the real, right, of the kind of intrusion of real life. Is there? I mean, is there some? Is is the Bachelor like, a, you know, like a Kanye West song that samples Ray Charles, or or is Open Water like a Kanye West song that samples Ray Charles? I mean, to me, no. But yeah, no, maybe I mean, like, I'm missing something. You know, well, the Bachelor, it seems to me, is is about or America's next top novel you know, or whatever I mean, like, it is. Those right. things are st- like reality shows are saga. They're stories. Mm-hmm. They're like, you know, serialized sagas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people go back to them is because there's a narrative. The same is true of American Idol. You know what I mean? There's an ongoing there's an ongoing saga which lasts a full season and you're you're hooked in by by the characters and the story. Um, the fact that they purport to be more real than mm-hmm. a scripted drama gives them, I would agree with Shields, a certain texture mm-hmm. that's fun or that, that, mm-hmm. that like, is, is it's different. They're, they're, but, of course, you know, now all these things have kind of ossified into, you know, they're, they're formalized, they're so formalized as to be, you know, the, the wink of real, mm-hmm. the reality and reality right. TV. It's the hills. Yeah, yeah. right. Is right. It's, and, and, and so in that sense, they're, it's, it's, yeah. it's all, a, it's, they're sort of all a grand joke in which, we, and we all know the punchline. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'll say the one, I, I come back, I'm coming back to the same section, you know, it, um, where Shield is talking about karaoke and MySpace and Twitter and yeah. Flickr and things like that. And he says, you know, user, he says, user made content is the new folk art. And that, is true and it mm-hmm. really and that really is something that I and I'd really I'd I'd like to think and know more about and you know Troy said that that's it's too fast of a moving target because we're right in the middle of it and you know Shields doesn't effectively pin it down but an example of something that uh, that Shields kind of gestures at but I don't think quite makes sense of he talks about and this is another this is another instance of. He's writing about music. He talks about the cover song and mm. karaoke and how somehow this is an example of – this is a manifestation of reality hunger. And here's where he's hobbled by his ahistoricism or his just like not knowing enough or thinking deeply enough about this stuff. You know, it's right, I think of um, one of the real icons of – uh, pop music at this point, I'd, I'd argue, is the is the YouTube cover song, like the bedroom cover mm-hmm. song by an amateur. And there's a lot of things going on there. I think it's like canon making information. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you know everybody now having the technology, the means to have their 15 minutes. So everybody's rehearsing their own stardom. It's also um, the example of Justin Bieber, uh, uh, a, a now a superstar who began that way. He was discovered by doing this stuff. So it's, you know, it's a path to celebrity, but it's also 
a return to the past. It's it's a return to the Victorian model of popular music where the parlor piano mm. the, was the site. You know, the, the pop music was consumed as sheet music, and it was a participatory sport that took place around the parlor with your family. So it's the re-domesticization of popular music. That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, and, and like, and like, yeah. and and that, and that to me is like that's the interesting stuff that's going on there. I'm not sure that what reality hunger has to do about has to do with it. And so I, you know, I mean, it's, it's hmm. and, and so, it, um, and I, I mention this only because like this is the um, section of. Shields' book that I'm most that I feel like I have a you know a, 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 a little not even a stake right, a stake I feel like I've taken all but like I know a little you know something a little about, about this it, right. about this the history and he right. just reveals himself to be a little bit shallow and is thinking about it moreover like hmm. historical it's like, I just don't think he's done his homework or thought about this in quite the right way and it's, it just feels hmm. slapdash so it's interesting because I mean I think you know he. He's right. It seems to me that right there, he's right that there's this emergence of a kind of return to cultural products, or not a return, but there's an emergence or a reemergence. We can t- table that question of cultural products that are stripping away the artifice of kind of being overtly made, <laughs> right? By um, so so we're moving from the sitcom to Survivor. We're moving from the hour-long drama to uh, um, America's Next Top Model, right? Whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it would be. That, 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 this happens in the 90s, and then the internet is blossoming, and we get the kind of fascination with porn. And, you know, he's on to... Like, there's clearly something there, right? Like, he's right that there's some interest in kind of stuff that seems to represent people, everyday American people. And now, whether we call that, my question is, is that reality hunger or is that, is that kind of like democracy hunger? Is that, mm. is that, as you say, maybe that is actually a return to the way things were before. Maybe the, the anomaly here is the 1950s model of um, cultural uh, distribution, which is the emergence of television as a huge, you know, basically the early 20th century, the sort of first half of the 20th century, you suddenly have mass media, yeah. which you didn't have before that. Maybe that's the anomaly, and we're just returning to what we had before mass media. And Well, right but now, now because know. of the way that media has changed, where uh, earlier there was folk art with the living room piano, now it's folk product that goes right, wherever. Right, right. And I thought that is one of the interesting parts of the book, like the section you were quoting from Jody, I thought. I thought it was interesting to think about karaoke as connected to you porn and connected. Like to me, that was a, a moment where I was like, hmm, sat up and kind of took interest. But I, I don't know what to say. Is that, re- I mean, Troy, do you think that's reality hunger, all of these things? Where do you think that they come from, this kind of surge of. Uh, I just kind of spaced out on that question. So instead, <laughs> what I'll say is that uh, there's one uh, sort of little thingy that I would have liked to see um, included in this book. Do you ever have these conversations with actors or young actresses at cocktail parties where you get to talking about their craft and they go into this old... All the time. <laughs> Wait, what? what, what, what? <laughs> I think I do, too, no, but no, what? I'm, I'm they totally they go out, into right. this, this, this whole spiel about how it's sort of like we in real life are the actors and they on stage are 
sort of inhabiting reality mm. and being themselves. Huh. I haven't actually had it, that something like that. Would Usually, seem... it's about the latest protein diet that they're on. <laughs> Sorry, um, but it's good. <laughs> does Shields? I forget. Does Shields mention the method, like method acting, in here? Because that strikes me as a mid-century. Forward. version of this, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's not very much in here on... It's very... Uh, it's mostly literary-minded. Even when right. And even when it talks about film, it's talking about it in a way that's yeah. um, very much a tourist and um, yeah. sort of screenplay-focused. So you wanted more... That was a throwaway line. Okay. Um, <laughs> you just wanted Jody. Uh, no, no, turning back to Jody, then. <laughs> no, you, know what, you, know, up. <laughs> you know what? I would have. I would have liked um, to see sharpened here. Is it strikes me that, um, and I, I, someone in this discussion was mentioning it earlier, the fact that we're bombarded, we've been bombarded for decades now with advertising, yeah. assaulted with advertising in a way that um, I think has raised everyone's suspicions about reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that advertising and political culture have become enmeshed or conflated, I think there's there's something there. You know, he, at one point um, he talked, he cites like was it Donald Rumsfeld who talked, or or, or Richard Pearl, or who was the, who was the guy in the Bush administration who had the reality based community line? Uh, famous it's Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld. It's Rumsfeld. Okay, fine. When he talks here about reality based art, which seems yeah. to be a conscious riff of that. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I mean, and you know. George Bush and truthiness and all that. I think. I mean. I think there's something to the fact that we have these um, artistic forms, these called this pop culture that's um, invested in truthiness, and that and that that you know mockumentary and verite, quote unquote verite um, sitcoms are all the rage. You know. What I mean. I think. I think there's there's interesting. There's an interesting. Um, Political atmosphere that's mm. contributing to that contributes to the rise of these forms. I'm not. I, I, I don't know whether that is what he means by reality hunger. But if he so, gets at that yeah. at one point because he talks about the fictitiousness of our times. He quotes someone who's talking about the fictitiousness of our times. I think. Yeah, I think that was yeah. Michael Moore's Oscar. That was Michael speech. Moore, right? Exactly. That's yeah. what it was. That's what it was. Yeah, and, you know. I guess we should wrap this up. Were you going to say anything else? I mean, I keep coming back to this idea that there's really two, at least two books here, or two different, several different kinds of work because the the parts there were a lot of little things I jotted down. There's a great, so example, four seventy is a great line from Yeats where he writes, "All that is personal soon rots; it must be packed in ice or salt." And so there are these intrusions of moments like that. The book becomes more like that as it goes on, where he's quoting from more people like Yeats or Nietzsche or Emerson, and the language just gets much more interesting, and the arrangement to me becomes much more interesting. And the um, and I think that some of what he's saying about kind of collage and intensity in art like that's all stuff that I'm kind of grateful for and I feel we've been like ragging Too on harsh. this book no 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 I'm just I'm, no I, I, I didn't I, you know it's not that I feel we've been too harsh, but, you know, in case David Shields listens to this or people who like this book listen to this, I would say, you know, it did, A, make me think about all these issues, which I was grateful for. And I do think that, that the chapter on memory and a couple of the other um, chapters work really, really well and were interesting. Right. So that was, for me, the takeaway was, as it went on, I liked it much more. Right. And I was interested in a kind of cocktail party way to think about some of these things, but I felt like there was just too much 
recycling, like I wrote down at one point. This is a book. It's not a book I would give to someone. The first half I wrote this in. It's not a book I would give to a student of mine who came to me to think about like what these genres mean right now. But it would give it to Rip Van Winkle if he had just woken up, <laughs> you know, because like the beginning is just there's so much of that kind of telling us what we already know about. But what about you, Troy and Jordy? Was there anything you want to say before we sign off that you did take away from this? Or um, I would say uh, along the same lines. Um, I'm looking now at note 143 in this book, mm-hmm. uh, which quotes the uh, Dogma 95 manifesto, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, spearheaded years ago by our dear Lars von Trier. So it's a uh, you know shooting must be. This is how you make a movie if you sign mm-hmm. this um, manifesto. I would point out that Lars only made one such movie, and then. Mm-hmm jettison this but shooting must be done on location and props and sets must not be brought in the sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa the camera must be handheld yada 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 so this comes to mind because um uh or if i can back my way into this i found this book annoying but it's a useful annoyance much like uh, a provocateur like lars von trier is Thank you. You I said guess what so. I was trying to say. Uh, I mean, like, I yeah, think... I think so, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like what we're thinking about. I also feel, like, a bit guilty. Is it, is it just my own neurosis that I feel like... Like, what did we produce here? And <laughs> I know. Did we uh, arrive at any clearer understanding of humanity? <laughs> no. Or, or the, the pleasures of, of or life of this and art? Book, or of this book. I feel like... I feel, <laughs> but I feel, in a way, we're mimicking a bit of the problem with the the book, which is to say that the book wants to set out, seems to purport to say that it's going to disentangle some things and be a manifesto, but it never did for me. So I feel like I'm just replicating, and I, I feel like I have not done a good, I haven't added anything to anyone's lives in this conversation, but but, but, hey, but, I, hey, but hey, I've nice enjoyed myself, <laughs> and I would like to thank David Shields for giving me that particular pleasure, and apologize to our listeners for failing to be eliminating <laughs> I'd, I'd like to make the same apology. Um, no, but but I, I guess if, um, I guess I'd say that um, I like Troy's idea about a good bathroom read here yeah. i mean and 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 that's that's a product of the of the form and i i enjoy the fact that this book is broken into these 618 sections it's a fun I, I, it's it's a for something that's heavy going and sometimes and and often or maybe even usually incoherent in terms of like the broader argument it's making it's kind of a breezy, fun read, simply because it's because of the way it's broken up, and uh, and I sort of um, made fun of Shields at the beginning for his letting himself off the hook by saying that this book was suggestive rather than coherent, but um, it is suggestive. Yeah, it's suggestive of uh, you know a lot of questions that are out there. So maybe I should just take him at his word and say, okay, it's suge- it's it's suggestive and try and extract what I can from it. So in that sense, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. This isn't, a, this isn't a book that I would say is a great book, but it's not a book that I would say don't read. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think to, it, I wanted it to be more suggestive because I felt like it kind of was a little bit pedantic. But, but just to, it, I do appreciate that it argues with itself, which is something maybe I, right. I would encourage, made clear enough. I would encourage the young, bright minds of today to read it so that they can vastly improve on it. Yeah, I, I I have one last question about this, which yeah. is um, one thing we didn't mention is the number of blurbs 
yeah. huge that are on the on cover, cover of the, the book, back. cover of the back of the, the book, cover which is, which is the whole book, actually. right? Which is at, which and, and blurbs from Jonathan Lethem, uh, Jeff Dyer, Wayne Kostenbaum, Charles Lydia Baxter, Davis. yeah, uh, uh, Frederick Bartlemy, like. And Philip Lopez. And do the, and all the these question, people owe him favors? The, well, the question is, do they owe him favors? Is and this is obviously a stunt on his part. I mean, this is obviously he's he's being cheeky here, right? Yeah, he's being cheeky here. Uh, about, but the question is, because I mean, I guess this is truthiness. He's suggesting that I mean, he's making a, a comment about the practice of blurbing and endorsement, and but. Or is that what? What is he doing there? Does anyone have a theory? I don't know. It's yeah. nice to see Wayne Kestenbaum's name on the cover because mm. he he does interesting work, uh, mm-hmm. sort of work that is coherent and makes sustained arguments. Uh, he's got a nice little Warhol book. Um, he was my yeah. first writing professor. No, but I found myself wondering: Were these actual blurbs? Did he? I think they're actual blurbs. The, yeah, I mean, they I don't mean, seem ironic. They don't seem strange enough to be not actual blurbs, right? But so why so? I mean, he's obviously saying something. The question is what? I guess and, I'm and back that, for and me. Maybe that's the maybe. I mean that that you know the, the very the cover of the book encapsulates the problem of the book. Hmm. Sure. Or is that a question for the marketing department at Knopf? Or a question? I think we need to end this conversation for our listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. Um, <laughs> well. Uh, with uh, gratitude for everyone for tuning in, we're sorry if we were not <laughs> as crisp and cogent as we might perhaps have been, but we did enjoy our conversation, and we hope you did too, and that you will tune back in for our next audiobook club. And Jody and Troy, I want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks for coming in to talk about reality and hunger. Keep it real. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. Okay. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke.